Good morning, Tapestry Church. Uh, my name is Sean. I am the high school pastor here at the Tapestry Church. For those of you who don't know me, this morning I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you. Um, today we're taking a little bit of a break from the Isaiah sermon series, mainly because this is a passage that I've been assigned to preach for my ordination, but also, uh, you know, it won't be that much different because you'll notice, I hope you'll notice, that the central message is still in line with our Isaiah sermon series. Namely, it's about the holy God who is very much involved in the affairs of his people. Except the one difference is that in Exodus, because I'll be preaching from Exodus this morning, the Israelites are in the desert, not in exile. In a way, we're going back in time in Israel's history to look at how they became a nation that God has chosen. Today's passage comes from Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. I'll be reading from the NIV. The words will be up on the screen. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. After leaving Egypt, the Israelites have traveled a long way. They've been wandering the desert for a long time, and at every obstacle they faced, the Israelites grumbled and complained against Moses, asking him why he brought them out of Egypt. When the Egyptian army pursued them, they said, did they not have enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out of Egypt to die, Moses? When they didn't have enough food, they said, sure, we were slaves in Egypt, but at least we had pots of meat to eat. But no, you had to bring us out here in the desert to die. 
of starvation. They talk about being savage to Moses. They grumble and complain, but at every complaint, God delivered them. Every obstacle they faced, God rescued them. And now they're camped in front of Mount Sinai, perhaps wondering why they're here. What are they doing here? Maybe even Moses is wondering why God has led them here. Perhaps some of us in this room this morning are in that same place, wondering, wondering why you are where you are, wondering why God has brought you to the place where you are, and maybe even wondering where he might be leading you next. Perhaps some of you have been wandering in the wilderness of life like the Israelites, and perhaps some of you were complaining and grumbling, God, why? Why am I going through this? And even in the midst of our complaint and grumbling, God still delivered us. And maybe some of us, many of us have experienced that in this place. And now wondering, God, where are you leading us? Where are you leading me next? Where are we going? And the first word that God speaks to his people is remember. Remember. In verse 4, God begins to tell what Moses is to say to the Israelites. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is getting the Israelites to remember. To remember what he has done for them up to this point. In this verse, there are three main things that God is calling to remembrance. First is what he did to Egypt. Through the ten plagues and the Passover, God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. He engulfed the Egyptian army in the waters of the Red Sea when they pursued the Israelites. What God did to Egypt was the display of his mighty power over the earth's strongest kingdom at the time. Not only that, delivering the Israelites out of Egypt was in keeping with his covenant promises with their forefathers. Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 and 24 says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out to God. And, and God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Secondly, God carried the Israelites on eagles' wings. This is a metaphorical way of speaking of his protection and guidance for the Israelites. In the ancient Near East, eagles were considered to be king of birds that protected their young by carrying them on their back. This imagery is often used to speak of God leading and caring for the Israelites in the wilderness. In Exodus 16, when there was no food to eat, God rained down bread from heaven in the morning and quail in the evening for them to eat. In Exodus 17, when there was no water at Rephidim, God brought forth water from a rock and quenched their thirst. And when the Amalekites attacked them, God delivered the Israelites and gave them victory over the Amalekites. Thirdly, God brought the Israelites to himself. Which points to the very fact that it was none other than God himself that has brought them into a relationship with him. 
Their deliverance and salvation was entirely by God's faithful and gracious act of fulfilling his covenant promise. All these things, what he did in Egypt, how God carried them on eagles' wings, how God has brought them to this point, all these things God has done. In a way, we also find ourselves in a similar position as the Israelites. How so? Well, it is entirely by God's gracious and faithful act that we are where we are. Many of us are gathered here because God has delivered us from bondage of sin and death. He has demonstrated his protection and guidance in our lives and brought us into a relationship with him. In times of wondering where we are and where we're going, God calls us first to remember. Remember what he has already done for us. Remember how he has provided for us, how he has delivered us, how he has carried us all the way through, and how he has brought us to this point. Remember the places from which God has brought us from. After calling them to remember, God then calls the Israelites to respond in obedience. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. Before we go on, it is important to note that God is not laying out a condition for salvation. God is not saying, if you obey me, then I will save you and do all these things. He has already done them. He has already rescued them from Egypt. He has already carried them through the wilderness. And he has already brought them to himself. It is entirely based on what God has already done that he is now calling for their obedience. Obey me fully in verse 5 is literally obey my voice in the Hebrew. God is calling the Israelites to listen attentively to his voice and to obey it. It is functioning parallel to the following phrase, keep my covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties, binding them by some kind of oath. This oath usually binds both parties to agree upon a certain future action. Usually when a covenant is made between God and an individual or a nation, it outlines what God will do for them as long as they respond in obedience. So then, what covenant is God referring to in verse 5? Is it the covenant that God has made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob? Or is it a new covenant that God is about to make with the Israelites? Peter Enns, an Old Testament scholar, argues that on the basis of Exodus chapter 2, the book of Exodus is entirely about God keeping the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus, he believes that when God tells the Israelites to keep his covenant in verse 5 of chapter 19, he's speaking of the same covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Other scholars, on the other hand, argue that the covenant God is, God is speaking here is the new covenant that he's about to make with them at Mount Sinai. Because in the next chapter, Moses and the Israelites 
receive the Ten Commandments. Though the Israelites did not yet know what would be the detailed requirements of keeping this law or the covenant, they're offered the blessing first of what keeping this covenant would look like. Namely, that they would enjoy a special kind of relationship, a special kind of status with God. Based on the context, I believe both views are right. Given what is about to take place in the next chapter, the covenant that God is referring to is probably the new one that he will soon make with them. However, this doesn't get rid of the old or the previous covenant that he has made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The new covenant is indeed a continuation and a deepening of the previous covenant, as ends have put it. Since they have not yet been given the land that was promised to them, the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still in effect, waiting to be fulfilled. And now a nation, a nation of Abraham's descendants, God will make a new covenant. And if they agree to keep them, there will be a new kind of relationship that gets established between them. Like the Israelites, after all that God has done for us, he calls for our response based on what he has done. And that response is obedience. He calls for our obedience Some might ask, well, I don't really know what he's done for me. We weren't ever slaves in Egypt or have wandered in the wilderness. No, you're right. We haven't. But we were slaves to sin. Were we not? We could not get out of the slavery ourselves. So God has graciously delivered us from this slavery through his son, Jesus Christ. The death he died on the cross put to death the old sinful nature in us. And this means that we have been freed from this dominion of sin that once reigned in us. We are no longer slaves to sin, but now have been freed to be slaves of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Not only that, on the third day, God has raised Jesus from the grave, making death powerless so that all those who believe in his name might be saved from the dominion of death into eternal life, a life that is to be full and abundant the, the way God intended for it to be. This is what God has done for us. He's done this to bring us to himself. He's done this not because we earned it or deserved it, but only because God is a faithful God who graciously and mercifully loves his creation, loves us, and keeps his promises. Through Jesus, God has established a new covenant, and he calls for our obedience. All those who love God will keep his commands, as John tells us. So many times in Scripture, Jesus makes it clear that to love him is to keep his commandments. We obey not out of obligation, Not forced or coercion, but of gratitude. Of gratitude. Because he has already done all the things that he has done for us. Because he has already loved us. As the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 32 says, to be a Christian 
To be a Christian means to present myself to him, to God as a living sacrifice of thanks. To be a Christian means that we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice of thanks. We live our lives in obedience to God because we're grateful for the things that he has already done for us. Therefore, obedience is the only rightful response of gratitude to all that God has done for us already. I mentioned previously that if the Israelites obey his voice and keep his covenant, they will enjoy a kind of special status. This special status is through the new identities that will be given to them. God said, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are three things here again that God mentions to define who they will be if they obey him. First, they will be God's treasured possession out of all the nations. The Hebrew word for treasured possession literally means a valued property to which one has an exclusive right of possession. No one else owns it, just me, and it's mine. In the figurative sense, it speaks of God's special covenantal relationship with Israel and his love for them. In the ancient Near East, kings owned everything in their kingdom. But within this total ownership, the kings might gather to himself a few things to set aside as his own special prized possession. Likewise, God rules over all the nations. After all, he is their creator. But out of all the nations, Israel will be set aside as his own special prized possession. If that's not special status in relation to God, I don't know what is. But they will be this prized possession if they obey him. Second, they will be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests speaks of what place and role Israel would serve on earth. Priests were set apart by a distinctive way of life, consecrated, made holy to the service of God and dedicated to ministering to the needs of the people. This would be the role of Israelites as a kingdom of priests. A nation that is set apart from all the other nations as God's special people. Having a distinctive way of life made holy, consecrated to the service of God, thereby enjoying intimacy with God, the ruler of the entire earth, and dedicated, entirely dedicated to ministering to the needs of the people on earth. Priests were mediators. They were the go-betweens between God and humans. As such, Israel would be the nation that would be appointed to mediate, to go between God and other nations. Their mission is to be the nation through which God's reign is fulfilled on earth. Their mission is to be the hands and feet of God on earth. 
to be a kingdom of priests meant that God was giving them the special status so that, that they would be his presence, his agents to other nations. Third, they will be a holy nation if they obey God. The word holy means set apart. Israel will be a nation set apart for a specific mission of being a kingdom of priests on earth as God's prized possession. If they obey, their set-apartness will become so distinct that that in itself will become public testimony to the world. Their holiness will be the public testimony to the entire world. But being set apart from other nations doesn't mean living in isolation. Through obedience to God, Israel will become a holy nation in order that all the surrounding nations would come to know that Israel's God is the only true God. Israel's chosenness is for a specific purpose, a specific mission. However, as we all know from how the story unfolds, which has also been made very clear to us in our Isaiah series, Israel failed. They failed to obey. They failed to keep God's covenant. And therefore, they have failed to fulfill this mission. According to Peter Enns, the ideal of being God's treasured possession, the ideal of being a kingdom of priests, the ideal of being a holy nation comes to fruition in two senses in the New Testament. First, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And second, the church. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's intention for Israel. He is God's treasured possession. He is the true king. He is the true high priest. He is holy. He lived in perfect obedience to God. Through him, the entire universal call to the nations to return to God is finally and fully put into effect. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be, his followers, his church, is now called a kingdom of priests. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You, you are the chosen nation. You are the chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people belonging to God. How do we as the church live in to this identity? How do we do that? How do we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light? Peter goes on further. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he returns. 
What is good except to live in complete submission and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ? This is holy living. It is only by obeying Jesus Christ that the church could be what we have been called to be in this world. Obedience to God will be the only way in which we could declare the praises of him who called us out of the darkness into his light. Obedience is the only way that we can shine the light that God has given us to shine. I believe we need to repent. As the church, we need to repent of the ways that we have not lived our calling. For our unholiness, for our unset-apartness, for the ways in which we have gone along with the world, the ways in which we have compromised, so much so that there's nothing distinct about us as Christians. Have we lived in such ways that we have failed to shine God's light in this world because there's nothing distinct about us? There's nothing holy about the way we live our lives in this world? We need to repent. We need to ask God for forgiveness. And as we do, may God forgive us and have mercy on us and help us to live in obedience to him so that we may live our calling to the fullest in this world. Oftentimes, we want the blessings from God without considering our responsibility of enjoying that blessing. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant is often glossed over as we live in relationship with God. We love hearing of all the things that God has done for us, how he has provided for us, how he's been there for us, how he's leading us and guiding us and protecting us, how much he loves us. We love hearing about what he could do for us. We want to continue to have him do all these things for us. We love the gifts. And we want that to continue. We love hearing of how, who we are in God because, because of what he's done for us and the blessings that come with it. We love hearing how we're children of God. We love how hearing, hearing how much we can be forgiven even though we sin. We love hearing about how much we can, be, we can return to God and how God is so ready to, to surround us with his compassion and love and forgiveness. But, but at the same time, we neglect, we neglect the way in which we're called to live in obedience we neglect that very important piece. For those of us still wondering why we're here, why we're at places where we are and where, we, where God might be leading us next, perhaps, perhaps, what God is saying to us is not where we're going, not why we are here where we are. But maybe God is saying to us about how we ought to live in the here and now. Not so much about where he's leading us or where we ought to go, but how we ought to live in the here and now. And that how is obedience. Remembering all that God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. After all that he's done, we're called to obey his voice and to keep 
the covenant he has made with us. And when we do, only if we live in obedience, then, then we will be and we will live as God's treasured possession, set apart for a special purpose to shine God's light on earth. And as we, the people of God, obey him and live out our purpose as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation, the world will come to know that the God we serve and the God we worship is the only true God. So let us go from this place committed Deciding right now, on this day, to love and to obey God wherever we find ourselves. To obey Him in the here and now. In our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in all the places that we occupy. May we go from this place and live out our obedience to God so that we might shine as God's chosen people. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for forgiveness. We ask for your mercy. We as the church have not been holy for the ways that we have not lived our lives in such, way that is, in such a way that is distinct, that is set apart, that is holy. For all the ways that we have compromised and we have cut corners in, in obeying you. Father God, forgive us. Have mercy on us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask, we ask that you would help us to live in obedience. Give us the heart and the resolve and the willingness and the intent to obey you fully in our lives, God. Wherever you have us in the present moment, wherever you lead us, God, we pray that you would empower us and enable us to live in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.